I was at a conference with an editor who did fiction, and a very famous celebrity came by. And I looked around. He's looking for the editor. And I looked around. The editor's gone. Just standing there a second ago. Gone. <laughs> and he's like, where's the editor? And I'm like, I-, I don't know. I don't know. He was just here. He leaves. Editor magically reemerges from like under a box. <laughs> I would kill for the opportunity to meet with this celebrity. But to this beleaguered editor, he's just dodging everybody. So why, though? In this episode, you'll get to know David Moldauer, the book whisperer. And you'll hear the story of how he became an editor at a major publishing house and then left that career to become one of the most sought-after ghostwriters in nonfiction. I'm Dave Crenshaw, and this is my success project. Welcome back, friends, to the Dave Crenshaw Success Project, a show where I teach my children how to be successful through the life stories of others, but you get to come along for the ride no matter what your age is. And in case it's your first time here, my job, I'm a best-selling author, and I speak around the world to Fortune 500 companies. I've taught millions of people how to be successful through my online courses. And with this show, I wanted to create something a little bit different, something that was more of a legacy project to help my family succeed, but I felt that you would want to learn along with them. So, In this show, I interview some of the most successful people I've met in my life. These are people who have achieved not just career or financial success, but multifaceted success in many areas of their lives. And what I look for in these interviews are universal principles of success, principles that you can apply in your life and career right now. So as you listen to today's episode, Look for something you can do, an action you can take, not a month from now, not a year from now, but this week. And if you do that, you'll make my guest, David Muldauer, a part of your life forever, and you will want to do that. David Muldauer has over a decade of experience as a nonfiction book editor. He has worked at many well-known New York publishing houses, including St. Martin's Press, McGraw-Hill, and Penguin. David is now the founder of Bookatect, where he provides ghostwriting and editing services. He's also the author of one of my favorite newsletters. In fact, one of the few newsletters I actually read, The Maven Game. And it's a newsletter for experts, authors, publishers, and agents. And I would just say anybody who's creative. So thank you so much, David, for being here on my podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's great to be on the show. Yes, I, I'm so it's so wonderful to reconnect with you. We we visited briefly a couple of years ago, and we've kind of had this friendship that's endured over a few years. And I'm just such a huge fan of your work. I'm honored that you would join us for this episode. It's my pleasure. And where are we reaching you today? Where are you at? I'm based. We moved during COVID. We were in the city. We were in Brooklyn. Now we're in Montclair, which is Brooklyn West. And a lot of publishing people are out here. So it feels comfy and familiar, even though it's suburban. Interesting. There's like a a publishing enclave or something. And everybody said, we're going to live in Montclair. I don't know when it was decided, but by the time we got here, it was already well established as a colony. And a lot of people here used to be in Brooklyn or other parts in the city. And it just feels familiar. Well, thank you for sharing this. I, I don't know if you know, but all of my kids, each of them want to be a writer. Uh, my 18 year old, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 18, 14, 10, all of them want to be writers, although they are all leaning fiction at the moment. So, you know, it'll be fun for them. But I think your perspective on content creation and creativity and writing is just so fantastic. You know, I mentioned in the intro how, how you're one of the only newsletters I read, uh, The Maven Game. But let's go back to the beginning. We kind of want to get your story, especially your career story. So I always start at the fun place, which is when you were a teenager. So not when you were a young kid, but when you were a teenager, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I'd wanted to be a writer from a very young age. And then that went away because I got a lot of pushback when I got into, especially into high school. I had teachers who were just wildly unsupportive. And it wasn't even that I didn't know how to write. It was that I didn't write what they wanted me to write, or I didn't write in the right style. So they would acknowledge that I had a verbal ability and I would win, you know, do well in all those kinds of tests and things, but there was just a kind of friction. And uh, I, by the, t- by the time I got halfway through high school, 
I decided I was going to major in chemistry because my chemistry teacher was the only one who was nice to me. Wow. Isn't that sad? <laughs> that is that is sad. I mean, it's great that you had a chemistry teacher who, who was kind and took an interest in you, but wow. You know, I, I've heard so many stories of teachers who validate their students and help them grow and help them, you know, be excited about what they'll become. But boy, they were sure wrong with you, the ones who said that you <laughs> weren't going to succeed in writing. Yeah, it was. I mean, I get it now more in retrospect, but, you know, I had a teacher and, you know, it's a style thing. And he didn't, I don't think in retrospect that he really understood that his it wasn't his job as a high school English or writing teacher to make me write like him or like the hmm. things that he liked to read. And I was lucky because I did have another teacher before I finally left high school who took a much more open-ended approach. What she would do was she would have us write whatever we wanted and read it. She she didn't choose. She stayed out of it completely. Okay. And then she let all the other kids in the class write anonymous uh, responses, sort of like this Twitter for, or X, formerly known as Twitter. Okay. And they would write their responses on little slips of paper and put them in a little box. And at the end of the class, you would you would take your feedback. But most of the responses were really enthusiastic and positive. And that was really nice to see that for the crowd that I was reading my stuff to, I was getting a, a great response. And that was the first inkling that I'd gotten that maybe I wasn't as bad as the other teacher had made me feel. You know, that teacher would only read what he approved of. Oh, okay. That was so it. He was gatekeeping. And so no one would hear what you'd written except for him. And then he would read what he considered to be the good writing. And the good writing all all was his kind of vein of, of uh, fiction. And... Uh, and one time as an experiment, I said, I wonder, like, is it true that he just will not let anything through as a gatekeeper that doesn't meet his kind of criteria? And so I wrote a piece that was entirely false, a sort of a memoir piece, deliberately hoping that it would kind of get through to him. And he did. He read it. And I was like, there you go. Like, I, I'm perfectly capable of, of clearing the hurdle. It's just he doesn't like the, the kind of stuff that I like to write. Um, so, you know, I learned a lot about it, but yeah, it beat me down. And by the time I, gra I graduated high school, I was going to be a chemistry major that lasted about two days. Okay. The second day I discovered the theater department and playwriting. And I, that was my thing all through college. But for two days, the first two days of school, I was committed to chemistry. Then I saw the lab schedule. I just, I wasn't interested. Okay. So it beat it out of you almost immediately. That yeah, I lost. Know. I lost it. I and I also being in college, you, you reinvent yourself. You have all these opportunities, and I saw all these classes in writing, and I was like, let's just give it a shot. I mean, what what's the harm? It's freshman year, and and then like I said, once it, once I, my stuff was in front of a crowd, and I didn't have the teacher's opinion kind of standing in the way, the gatekeeper, I saw that there was a positive response, and I there was something there, and, and that's what I pursued. So I want to go to your college education in a moment, but I want to go back to that feedback that you were getting from students. Was there anything that someone said to you that stood out in your mind that you still remember to this day? I think I still have the slips. Oh, somewhere. really? I think I kept them in a box and are in a closet because it was really great. You know, I wasn't the most popular kid. And so when I got these slips and let's say out of 30 kids, 25 would be not just I liked it, but especially the, they would respond to humor and to know that, to see that over and over again, this was so funny. I love this one. You know, this was better than last week's. And I took every opportunity to read that I could because she left it up to us whether we wanted to share our work or not. And that was all, that's always been an environment where I thrive. It's one of the reasons that I do my newsletter, just to have that kind of live response. And then in writing classes in college as well, when I got that opportunity to just read my stuff and not have to win in any sort of, you know, is this the right category? Is this the thing the teacher likes? That was where I really thrived because I then I could tailor it to the audience as opposed to some imaginary. It's so much harder to just write in the abstract. When I know who I'm writing for, the task is much easier. That's fascinating because that's a big part of what you do now is sort of taking on a voice of someone that you're working with, particularly if you're ghostwriting and you're matching that style. So that ability is, is a gift, but uh, it's interesting. You said you get feedback, you got feedback on it being funny. And there is a thread of wit in everything that I've seen you write. And that's part of the reason why I find your Maven game newsletter so interesting is because I'm always going to, I'm going to smile and possibly chuckle with it. And that's difficult to do, yet it's so powerful. I've heard the phrase, and maybe you've heard it, funny is money. I've never heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's good, though. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's even a book. It, it, the, the title sounds manipulative, but it, it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's make them laugh and take their money. 
And there really is truth in that people, when they feel that they're laughing, when they feel entertained, that they're more open-minded and more willing to uh, either be persuaded uh, or to understand what it is that you're trying to convey to them. So it seems like that's something that's always been a part of your writing. It's an advantage. Absolutely. And when I pepper, and I have to be judicious, but when I pepper a little humor into a client's piece, because it's got to sound and feel like them. And we'll always have that moment. You know, they'll say, this is hilarious, but can I say this? Not to say that it's so hilarious, but in the context of a business book or a self-help book, if somebody, if there's something kind of witty, the clients are always kind of delighted by it. And then there's that question of like, does this sound like me? Is this, does this feel authentic? And sometimes it's got to go. Sometimes it's got to go. And I censor a lot of stuff myself just because I, I feel like it's a little beyond that line. But again, that's the beauty of writing for other people and also of writing for their audience, knowing that they have an audience, knowing that they've got a platform and what that content already looks like, wh- whether they have a YouTube channel or, or a blog or a newsletter. I already kind of know, you know, so many of those questions are answered where you go in with a blank page, you're kind of figuring everything out. That's a lot harder. But once you kind of know who you're writing for and who you're writing as, the job gets a lot easier. Mm. So let's go back to college for a moment. Your major (laughs) wasn't science, but it wasn't writing. Talk to me about that. That's right. It was theater. And, And the reason I went in that direction was in college, who's your, you know, you have an audience when you do theater. You, Mm. if you put on a show at a small college, people are going to come They're just, they have nothing else to do. And so, you know, you're going to fill the house, which is if you're doing a play, it's just so delightful to know that you have a full house and yes. if there's something funny, they'll laugh. And you, so again, having that built in audience, knowing that I was writing for not just the abstract world of people who go to plays, but specifically for a group of, you know, in our big box theater, let's say 500 of my peers. Again, I kind of know what kinds of references and jokes I can make. I can, I know where they are in life and what they're going to respond to. So that was delightful. And writing, just writing for myself or for a class wouldn't have been as much fun. And as a writer of plays, I could direct the plays and I could, you know, it was social. It became my social life in college. I did three out of four classes every semester in theater. So that became my entire college experience, pretty much. I went the opposite direction because I realized in the real world, you have to spend a long time doing plays in front of five people in a rat infested black box studio. And suddenly I didn't know who I was writing for. What kind of people even go to these things? I pr- pretty quickly realized that writing online was where I would find that kind of back and forth. And I you know, had a blog in the early days and then I got into podcasting in the very, very early days. And those were all really gratifying. And then I, then I got into publishing and that, you know, that took it to the next level because now we're doing books for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. So there's a really important principle that's running through what you're saying here, which is you knew your audience, you know your audience. Even going back to that teacher, right? You, in that choice, chose to write for him, even though, as you said, it was false. I think that that might be an underestimated gift that you have the ability to put yourself in the mind and heart of someone else and say, what does this person want. I think all too often as writers and really anyone who's creating content, they kind of just create what's for them rather than thinking of what's this going to do for someone else. Can you, can you talk to me about your process of how you determine what is the best way to reach a particular person? Absolutely. I mean, it's a really important point because it's very easy to confuse. You know, we, we get this idea, especially when we talk about things like authenticity, it's like, Oh, I'm I, like you said, I'm writing for myself. I'm a writer. I've got to write from the heart and look at so-and-so. But the thing is, so-and-so became famous because of the zeitgeist. They might've been writing for themselves, but that happened to coincide with the demand at that time. In other words, they didn't tailor it. They didn't figure out where the audience was. They were doing their thing and they were going to continue doing it. And, and there's a quote, I remember David Bowie saying uh, that he never understood why he was popular at different points. You know, He was creating music from the 60s until the 2010s. And at some points, he was the biggest figure in pop culture. And at other points, he was pretty much forgotten, pretty much in the, in the background. And he was making albums that entire time. And he didn't, it's not like he did anything differently. He was doing David Bowie. And what David Bowie does fell in and out of fashion. That was it. Hmm. And he was able to keep it going because his early financial success allowed him to continue even when it wasn't working. And he didn't really care. He was happy to do his thing, whether it was for 
a relatively small audience or, you know, let's dance or some sort of huge hit. And so a lot of people do that. And I just, you know, it's unfortunate when people come to me and they don't understand why their thing isn't working. And then there's that idea of like, well, I've got to do, this is what I'm interested in. I'm there to show them that other side of it. It's like, that's fine. If you want to be like Bowie in the sense of whether people come to you or not, you're going to do your thing, whatever your thing is. But if you're looking to reach the largest possible audience, then you have to develop that skill of the reader experience of bringing in, who am I writing this for? What do they want out of this? And, you know, often I'll work with clients who uh, don't read business books, for example. Okay. And they want to write one. And I know the expression, eat your own dog food. It's like, how do you even know what goes in one of these things if you've never read one before, you know, and you have no interest? And why do you even want to write something that you have no interest in reading? And so we have to kind of look a little bit more closely, which is not to say I force them to become big business book readers. That's part of what I provide as a service. I can tell them, I can say, oh, well, this idea is a little stale. We don't use this term anymore. And we, we can go beyond this subject matter to this one because readers are familiar with this already. And that's what I can provide. But I think everybody owes it to themselves to answer that question. So many people come to this stage of, I want to write a book and have absolutely no thought. And I'm not exaggerating. They've given absolutely no thought to anyone reading it. Like they don't, they assume that the publisher of all people, the publisher makes people read it like it's a school. And, and I, that's yeah. a big problem actually for academics because in the, in the world of academia, you assign the textbook and they have to read it for homework. And if you give a class, they have to sit there. And that's true in business too. It's like if you are a corporate trainer and you're giving a, a training on a subject, the what are they going to do? They're the employees, the CEO sitting there. They're not going to get up and walk out when they're bored. Right. And so you can afford to, for example, bury the lead, meaning to put the interesting and exciting part of the lesson at the end. And what are they going to do? Like that, you know, they're going to be there for it. When you write a book, which most people barely get past chapter two in, in most of these business books, even when they like it. So true. Yeah. It's you can't afford to bury the lead because you have no control over their reading experience. You have to make it as appealing as possible and work every page to maintain their interest and to do something useful for them. Every chapter has to serve a purpose and should stand alone. And so that's that's kind of like the lesson. That's like the big lesson when I work with somebody. So you threw a phrase in there where you say that the publisher of all people would make people read the book when in fact, that's not what a publisher is there to do. So that kind of ties into where you started work as an editor. Give us just a day in the life of what it is to be an editor for a publisher. Sure. I had a lot of romantic notions about this work when okay. I started. And when I started, I got into publishing in 2003-ish as an intern. And um, that was when I decided, you know, theater wasn't for me. I'm going to try books. At that time, we were still seeing, you know, the 90s had been a huge, huge time for book publishing. The books had been doing really well. There was a lot of money. There was a lot of glamour. And that was all fading away at the end of the 90s with the rise of Amazon and the internet and all these changes. But I still saw that era. And so you look at these, the people who were the editors and executive editors and publishers then, and I was like, oh my God, this is so glamorous. Their friends are all celebrities. They all have houses in the Hamptons <laughs> and they have cars, which felt so exciting living in New York City and having a car oh, or even yeah. have some of them, some of the more successful editors had company cars. They actually had a guy in a car, like a limo sitting outside the building. And when they had a lunch to go to, they would go downstairs and he would drive them to the lunch. I mean, it was intense. It and was you saw heavy. this. Experience. And, and, yeah, and I saw it. To it. People with two assistants. If you've ever seen The Devil Wears Prada, it wasn't that different, you know, Interesting. Um, that era uh, in terms of New York media. And so I had this idea that that's what it would be. Okay. And so you put up with a lot in those kinds of cultural capital jobs. And uh, when you start out as an editorial assistant, which is one step above an unpaid intern, and you have to intern usually first to even get that opportunity. What you're doing mostly is making copies, but we had physical, everything was done on paper. You know, the, wow. the they would edit with a pencil and yeah. then I would have to copy the manuscript with all the edits on it before I mailed it so that we didn't lose the edit. What if the mail got lost and I'd have to take all the stickies off. So I copy a page, copy the sticky, copy a page, you know, for <laughs> 500 pages. And there were a whole, there's a whole room just filled with every version going back and forth between the editor and the author. And these were very prestigious. Um, I was at an imprint when I started that was very prestigious. So these were all very famous authors, very famous books. And the only thing they let you do 
editorially is you look at the proposals. And that was a wake-up call. It was a bit like my experience in college when I got to look at the application essays. We did these theatrical performances where we acted out the admissions essays from the incoming freshman class. This was something I did every year. Okay. And I got to see the other essays. And it was a wake-up call because for one thing, I realized I wrote a hell of a lot better than most of these kids at this top school, but also the repetitive nature of it. Every college admissions essay is practically the same. And every proposal, every, you know, out of the masses, out of a hundred proposals that go to an imprint that publishes fiction and nonfiction, you get the same story over and over again. Can I pause you on that for just a second? Sure. So there is like a generally accepted standard, and this isn't just in editing, but other things in, in other businesses, like here's how it's supposed to be done. And if you deviate from that, in this case, a book, if you deviate from what is an accepted book proposal, then they might not pay attention to it. I mean, I was told that with my book proposals. So what's the balancing? Where where do you deviate enough from what is accepted in order to get noticed, but also not show that you don't have a clue what you're trying to do? No matter what your career is, your foundation of success begins with one thing, effective time management. And thanks to the generosity of Microsoft, you can get my entire course, Time Management Fundamentals, for free on LinkedIn Learning. Go to davegift.com to get your free access now. This is the course that millions around the world have used to become more productive and reduce stress. Everyone from Fortune 500 executives to freelancers to students. Now, it's the same coaching I've provided in person for tens of thousands of dollars per day, but you can get it for free on LinkedIn Learning. You don't need to provide anything to access it. No credit card, no email. Just go to davegift.com and start learning. Thank you so much, Microsoft and LinkedIn Learning, for your partnership. davegift.com. So the thing about everything, every proposal being a certain thing, it's just like job applications. It's nonsense. What it is, it's a desperate attempt to screen all the people who really have no business sending a book proposal in. Okay. There's such a vast wave, they say, over the transom, you're just coming in. So the first thing we do is we say it has to come through a literary agent. And that's just a, that's just to prevent this constant inundation. Uh, an agent has the advantage of getting paid. If they sell your book, they get 15% of whatever you make on that book forever. Yep. So they have an incentive to, to just dig through and dig through hundreds and hundreds of you know undifferentiated proposals. We didn't get more money. We just got our salary. We had to show up at work and we didn't want to die. And so we make up a lot of those rules. It's got to be an agent. It's got to have the right format just so that we can, you know, in the same way with a job, oh, your resume wasn't formatted. Sorry, you know, but the fact is, if you see a great resume with what you need, it doesn't matter what font it is. And with our proposals, you know, often I would see agents who would say, even teach courses, this is what the right book proposal should look like. But speaking as the assistant who actually read hundreds and hundreds of proposals from every agency in the city, there is no standard format. Every agent, of course, because they don't see the other ones, they think their way is the right way, but there isn't. Okay. All we need is enough information to choose. And sometimes it's literally a page. It's just the right page. So someone listening to this, they say, I've got a book idea or whatever. Maybe it's something else that they're trying to propose. What did grab your attention? Well, there are different kinds of books. And it's super important to understand that different categories of books are completely different products. So anything you think you know about writing because you read novels doesn't apply to nonfiction. Anything you think you know about writing histories doesn't apply to business books. So that's first things first. Let's just figure out what category we're in. But what would catch when it comes to fiction quality, that's easy. You can tell from the voice whether you want to continue. One page of a book, and, and any reader has this experience. You pick up a novel, you look at the first few paragraphs, you already know whether this is in your vein or not. The nice thing about novels with, that are published traditionally is you know that it isn't just this person, that an editor and a whole team of people were involved. They'll probably stick the landing. You know what I mean? Like if it starts strong, it's probably going to have an ending. 
Okay. And we take that for granted, unless you read a lot of self-published fiction, in which case you realize, oh, wow, it's possible to completely not stick the landing because it's just this person who just put it online and they started off strong and then they kind of fell off. But we see it with TV shows, right? You start a TV show, start strong, middle of season two, you're like, what is going, they never knew where they were going with this, you know, lost. (laughs) This, this feels like every CW show I've ever seen. Oh, right. Cause it, cause they're, they're going to go as long as they can go. So a book, when you buy a book that's traditionally published, there's that sense like if it starts strong, first few pages, the thing about being an editor is it's not like that. Mm. It can actually completely fall. And I didn't know this because I didn't do much fiction. And then one time I specifically remember an editor asked me to read because you have to get other editors sometimes to to chime in for you when you want to buy a book. And so the editor said, would you just look at this novel? I know you don't do a lot of fiction, just read the novel. And I start reading it. It was awesome. It was this like zombie action thriller. (laughs) <laughs> and it was so exciting. And, but I didn't, you know, in nonfiction, you read a proposal. I, I wasn't used to reading a whole book overnight. That was not my uh, speed. Fiction editors do that routinely. And so I got halfway through, which I felt very proud about myself. I get there the next day, I give it an enthusiastic thumbs up. And then that night, I go to finish this exciting thriller. And let me tell you, that guy dropped the ball hard. Oh. He had no idea where he was going. All the threads just went whoosh, and then it ended. And I felt so embarrassed because I'd given my vote of confidence to this thing. And, and of course, she fixed it. And it was fine. But I'd never seen a book fall off a cliff like that before because I'd never, you know, I wasn't really reading much self-published, certainly not po- you know, sometimes popular ones like, like Wool, but I'd never read that much. So I didn't know that I didn't have that experience of having something that was good page by page completely yeah. falling apart. That's a fiction problem. Nonfiction is a whole different story. Why you know? did you eventually gravitate toward nonfiction versus fiction? That's exactly why. It's, it requires, I mean, I like TV. I like movies. I have other interests. You go into the editor of a fi- back then when it was paper, the fiction editor office would be these horrible stacks just to the head <laughs> against the walls, just chaos. You would go into their office and it would just be chaos. And they would always be months behind. And I wrote, when I took answering, you know, answering messages, it was always then like, when are they going to look at this? When are they going to look at that? I was at a conference. I swear to God, I'm not going to name any names. I was at a conference with an editor who did fiction and a very famous celebrity came by and I looked around, he's looking for the editor and I looked around, the editor's gone, just standing there a second ago, gone. <laughs> and he's like, where's the editor? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. He was just here. He leaves. Editor magically reemerges from like under a box. <laughs> Because he was dodging him because he didn't want to re- he didn't want to read or reject his lousy novel that this celebrity had decided to write. Uh, and I thought that was like, I would kill for the opportunity to meet with this celebrity. But to this, you know, beleaguered editor, he's just dodging everybody because he's getting these 600 page novels, five a day. Some of them he has to respond overnight. It's a crazy lifestyle. So why, though, why would it not be the same? I mean, aren't lots of people pitch, pitching nonfiction as well? Why does... Well, the difference is, is that nonfiction is a lot harder. You, so there are people, uh, Dean Kuntz, you know, there are people who can just write a novel every few months, some faster. Uh, I, I read one book on productivity for writers, and she said, you know, if you're like most self-published romance novelists, you write 15 books a year, but you can actually get away with writing 12. And I was like, are you, did you just say t- that you can get away with 12? So there's a, yeah. you know, you can crank out a tremendous amount if you're working with a formula, if you're in a, a known genre, there's the cowboy, there's the, you know, she works at the diner. But nonfiction, typically you have had an experience. If you founded a company and write a book about it, you're done. You have to found another company now. To, to, do you know what I mean? So the, yeah. you're not cranking out dozens and dozens of nonfiction books and their proposals. So we have an expectation on the nonfiction side that you're not going to send us a completed manuscript that you're going to give us a proposal, which is vastly easier to evaluate. Let's let's pause on that for a second, because for those who are not familiar with that process, I've done that, right? Where I write a book proposal prior to even writing a page of the book. And I have gotten books sold based purely on the proposal. In a situation like that, what do you need to sell in a book proposal to make someone say, yes, I want to pick this up? Well, that's a great question. So when we're talking about today, nonfiction is especially prescriptive, meaning books of advice, like the kind that you write. I want to get better at something. I want to, you know, develop a a skill or capacity. It's so much more about the who than the what, because we want a platform so that we can find an audience for these things. And we want the uh, credibility 
like I said, you founded a company. Only, you know, only one person founded Facebook. Um, so someone else can write a book about the founding of Facebook. But if you want to found companies as successful as Facebook, the thinking is you're going to want to read the book that Mark Zuckerberg has to write about Facebook. And that's true of, of any subject area. It's always stronger to come from that position of, you, you know, you did it. You're the guy, you're the person who lost the weight. You're the person who did whatever, ran the mile, the four minute mile. Yeah. And so, um, what we're looking for is a compelling author, both in terms of their background expertise and platform. And that's all very easily and simply conveyed. Sometimes it's just saying their name, right? If it's a celebrity or even modestly well-known person, you don't have to say more than that. And as an editor, I would meet with an agent and the agent would say, what about so-and-so? And I'd be like, that sounds great. At that point, it's theirs to lose. Once you've got the name and I'm excited about that name, then they just have to ruin it by showing me something that's terribly written and saying he loves it. He's not going to change a word. Okay. As long as I feel like there's a good chance that this person I'm excited about can do a book on this subject, there's that confidence that one way or the other, we can get it done. And that's enough. But for those of us who don't have that name. Well, here's the thing is that in a category, famous can mean very different things. Mm. So an editor who acquires books in a particular category of like business books, their idea of an author that they're excited to work with is not necessarily in any way a household name. It's just somebody that they know from their world and their interests. So a lot of people who are not celebrities still, if you told me so-and-so wanted to write a book, I'd say, oh, that's really cool. I want to see what they have to say about this. So that's part of it is that the editors have that subject area knowledge. If the editor who specializes in your area has no idea who you are, you have to ask who is going to know who you are when the book comes out. And that's the first question to ask before, because the proposal is driven by how you're going to sell the book. The whole proposal is a sales document. It's convincing a book publisher. This is a bet worth making. Like you can sell X number of copies. Now, different publishers that have different numbers that they like. Some publishers are perfectly happy with five or 10,000 copies in hardcover. And if you have a, you know, a solid chance at that, they're thrilled. Others are going to take a big swing. So where, who are you going to sell it to? So you're getting into the, the business side of things. Now you're talking sales and marketing and yeah, convincing people to, to get the book off the shelf. Where in your journey did you start to acquire the business knowledge of marketing and what it takes to sell a book? It's funny that you see it that way, because I, I guess because I've been doing this for so long, I see it's so inextricably an editorial decision. It's exactly what I was doing in high school English. Who am I writing for? Interesting. Who am I writing for? And with the internet, you know, we can find, anyone can find an audience. No matter how obscure your interests or opaque your writing, there's some, at least one person. <laughs> Even in my earliest blog, there always be some random person. I love this blog. I'm like, who are you? Where are you? That's the beauty of the internet. The, these things, people find them. And if you don't have an audience, because it, it actually doesn't require that huge of an audience. Everyone's familiar or many people are familiar with Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans. You can actually do pretty well with a relatively small audience. But if you're not putting enough stuff out there, whether it's a podcast or a newsletter or just anything, to begin to gather that audience, the book is a terrible first step. You really do need some small snowball of people, you know, even a hundred. If a hundred people are thrilled about your stuff and are, they're like, we're all there, Dave. We're there on day one when your book is published. If they're not there. Who is going to just be browsing through Amazon's listings? You know, this idea like, when you walk through a bookstore, you know, very few of us are just walking through the business book section, just looking at the spine out books. Not anymore. Saying, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Right. Of course not. Of course not. And in fact, if you look, you'll see many of the most successful books of the last 10 or 20 years are almost, it's almost impossible to tell what they're even about. You know, the energy bus, like they're the go giver. These, the, none of these books, like you actually have to read them to even know what they're about in the first place because they're driven by who the person is and the audience that they've already built, who moved my cheese. None of these books would have sold a copy if it was just a question of here, this is the name of my book. There's a picture of a mouse on the cover with some cheese. You know, oh, my ice, my iceberg is melting. These books have sold millions of copies, but only because the author was already out there speaking, training, writing a blog, and they had people. And then the people came to them and I say this to my clients, like, that's when you know it's time. When someone comes to you and says, you should write a book. Like you've been, you talk about this stuff a lot. I love your advice, but I would love to have it in one place, crystallize it, your system. 
that's when you know it's time, not when nobody knows who you are anywhere. Why would the book be the first step when you have a WordPress free installation? For me, with the myth of multitasking, I had already been doing coaching with a lot of people and I was seeing the impact and people were like, we need this, we want this. And so writing it became easy because I already done the work. And and this, I want to highlight something you said, which is, you know, people jump to the book. But you use the phrase, you talk about this stuff a lot. I mean, I run into people all the time like, Dave, I want to write a book like you. And I'm like, great. What are you putting out in terms of content right now? Are you putting posts up on LinkedIn? Are you writing things and, and sharing that with other people? And it's like, well, no, I haven't started that. I go, well, that, that's your first step. Let's just see if you can, if you want to keep talking about this for a long time. That's the first thing. Are you really that committed to it? And then after you've been doing it for a while, then you've got enough material where maybe we can start talking about putting it into a more formal format like a book. That's right. And it also helps in that way that I talked about of knowing who you're writing for, Mm. because you can have this idea of what you think is interesting about your subject. When I started my newsletter, and I'd done other things before, but for this particular newsletter, I started maybe seven years ago, eight years ago. If you look at those early ones, I thought I was writing for people in publishing. I'm a ghostwriter. I've got all these people on my mailing list who are in publishing. And so I would write stuff that I thought would be interesting to, to an editor, an agent. Over time, based on the responses I was getting, I realized people who were not in publishing were reading people who were writers themselves or people who aspired to be writers, creators. And my writing shifted because I could see what people responded to. And that was very gratifying. Oh, when I talk about this, when I offer this kind of advice, when I tell stories like this, people really write back. And then when I do this other inside baseball publishing stuff, there's nothing, crickets. And so my writing evolved based on that. So it's not just about building an audience. It's also about figuring out like what, where the intersection is between what you know and what's useful to other people. Yeah, both developing your voice and the connection to, to the people who want to hear that thing. Let's go back to your career story for just a moment. So what was the last job that you had prior to deciding to go independent? Where were you working uh, as a senior editor? So what happened to me was I'd worked at these different book publishers. And like I said, the, the book publishing industry was definitely in an era of decline. And so as I climbed the ladder, I realized that all the milestones I thought I would hit financially and in terms of celebrity project, all these things that I thought would happen when I got to the same level as the people who'd been there when I started out weren't there. And they weren't just there, not there for me. They weren't there for any of my peers. So like we were all coming up and the ladder was being pulled up by the people above us as fast as they could. It was starting to realize that climbing a ladder that's going off of a cliff. That's right. That's right. And I realized that, that whatever my career looked like, you know, when I was a senior editor, I was like, this is not what I imagined, you know? And I was also frustrated with the industry and the way that it was very slowly grappling with the disruptions, the technological disruptions and the changing ways people were reading. And that frustration led me to Amazon where I helped found their New York book publishing imprint that I thought that would be this sort of delightful combination of Amazon's technological expertise, forward thinking pace, and also having a kind of all these wonderfully talented editors and book publishing people. And it it was kind of that, the opposite, (laughs) kind of the weaknesses of both instead of the strengths of both. (laughs) Like the joke about, you know, the, the beautiful woman who wants to marry Einstein. And he's like, what if the baby gets your brain and my looks, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it was like that. And so at that point I went to a startup called creative live and where I ran the, the business and life section. So we were doing live courses and it was really interesting because it was exactly the same in many ways, the same challenges, the same kinds of experts. I worked with many of the same people were creating this content, but you watch it instead of reading it. And I learned a lot, but I got to that point where I could either continue on into that world of just tech and online content and, and who knows where I'd be or be to hasty retreat to my comfort zone, you know, where my strength is as a writer. And that's when I made the decision. And that, like I said, that was like seven or eight years ago. And even a creative live, I would meet with people to pitch them, say, come teach a course. And they'd say, okay, but can you help me with my book proposal on the side? And I'd say, this is really interesting. You know, people really get stuck, even successful authors with long track records, not just the effort, not just the challenge of putting it together, but also that sense of what the market wants and how it's changing, you know? And there is that, there's always that fear with, especially with nonfiction where it's like, all right, I said my thing. What's the next thing that I do? I can have a big audience, but if I already did the book on X, 
what else is there for me to talk about that would be you know, authentic to me, but also would resonate with this audience that I've built. And since that was kind of my area, that's where I stepped into all of this. Interesting. What happened to your work-life balance when you made the switch from working for a company to working for yourself, essentially? Did it improve things at first or did it make things worse at first? I've had to get a lot more efficient. I've had to use a lot more of those productivity tips that I was putting in books for the longest time. Okay. And because the, the life of an editor, you're really on the hook to acquire books. I would edit and a lot of my peers did not really edit. You know, they say people don't edit anymore. I would edit. And so I would really end up jammed. But I always knew that I was being held accountable for the books I brought in. You're out there having lunches and meeting with people and coming up with ideas. And it's very all consuming, but, you're, but it's not focused. It's not focused. You never have a time to sit down. I'm going to edit for the next three hours, you know, what Cal Newport calls deep work. And so there was a lot of just bustling around, a lot of meetings, and, and those are exhausting in their own way. When I became a, when I started doing this, and so I got to transition. When Amazon came along, we were kind of going back and forth to Seattle. We were heading a New York office. I'm bubbling all over the place. So I already kind of transitioned a bit into remote work. And also they're much more free with how you work. You're not expected to be at your desk in your office yeah. and all this. And then Creative Live was based on the West Coast. So I was really just on my own. And it was and it forced me to develop those skills of you know sitting down first thing in the morning, knocking out that focused work, you know, just organizing my approach to work. So by the time I started doing this on my own, I already had a rhythm. I was already comfortable. I know a lot of people who do the same transition that I did, but immediately from like the nine to five office to the, and they, they're swimming for months sometimes because they're not used to that. They're used to basically not having to decide what to do because 80% of their day has been determined by their boss or their peers. Right. Got to go to that meeting, got to do this thing, got it. So they barely have an opportunity and the work gets done in the little cracks to actually sit down at, even though there's no one there at your desk, 8 a.m., and do you know three hours of work, lunch, come back, that is a skill. And I'd already been kind of halfway doing it. And so now it's all totally second nature. I would very much resent having a million predetermined meetings on my schedule at an office. How do you find customers? What, what is your greatest source of bringing in new business? Word of mouth. So a number of agents who, especially those who do a lot of these books know about me. And so someone will go to them who has some of the ingredients. So it might be an author they're excited to work with, or it might be an idea that they think has potential, but it's not there yet. And they can do it themselves. They can devote months and months working with that author, but why not send them to me? They still get their 15%. So it's a pretty easy decision for them to make. They send it to me. I'm going to send it back. I'm not going to just run wild with it. So they have you know, no incentive to really beat their head against the wall because not every project is going to work out. They send it to me and other authors as well. You know, People who've worked with me before say, hey, you're struggling with your book. Talk to Dave. Maybe he can help you. So that's probably where most of it comes from. So a lot of people, I think, tell themselves perhaps they should work for themselves, right? They, it's a very common dream for people to own their own business. But few people actually take that step and even few, fewer people actually succeed when they take that step. So in your experience, what hasn't worked? What are some moments where you go, ah, you know, I used to do it that way, but now I don't do it that way because it, it was costing me too much? Absolutely. Tracking my time has been the most important component. Just getting really conscious of time. Because when I started out, I was offering everything I could do. I'd say, I'd help you with your marketing plan. I'd help you with your outline, I'd, whatever. But different projects monetize in different ways. And the more I did it, the more I realized that on this kind of work, I'd be making X an hour. And on this kind of work, I'd be making X an hour. And it didn't make any sense to do that kind of work anymore. It wasn't an efficient use of my time. And also, I figured out where my strengths were. But it was really by looking at the numbers. And you and I both know Mo Bunnell, who's a big yeah. fan of measuring hours. And he, he actually measured the hours working with me and was able to tell me exactly how much time I had saved him because he had done a proposal alone and then did one with me. And he actually saw it's like it was 100 hours alone, 50 hours of me. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting statistic I can use. Yeah. And, um, and so by looking at the data 
because of course there's an emotional component, like this is frustrating. I don't really like this kind of work, but there's also just looking at the data and say, Hey, this project took X number of hours and I made this amount of money. I'm just going to do, if I do eight of these, I can, I would have to do 30 of those. And those are a bigger headache. So just being really willing to kind of keep pivoting and sharpening it and being willing to say, I don't do that anymore. You know, a lot, cause I sent out a big alert when I started, like to everyone I knew, this is what I'm doing. And, uh, and that changed pretty quickly. And I've had to go back be like, actually, I don't really do all those things. I do this. And then they say, oh, great. Cause I would never have hired you for that stuff. But if you do this, I want to work with you. So it's that constant communicating with the people who might hire me, being very clear about what I offer, focusing on the stuff that is kind of high performance. All it is, is just being willing to learn, you know, and a lot of people I see struggle kind of come in and like, I'm going to do it this way. And if it doesn't work, I'm just going to kind of go off a cliff and then go find a day job again. You know, like if it doesn't work this way, I'm just done. But nobody just bounds into this thing succeeding. Same with authors. You know, it's like your first few books might not work. You got to tweak. Yeah, that that's really interesting right there because that is part of the problem is people aren't committed to the choice that they've made. Either because they're kind of tying to halfway in and halfway out, like they're having a full-time job while they're trying to hang up their own shingle. Or like you, I love how you said that, like they, they're going to do it one way. And if that one way doesn't work, then they're out. When really it's about, are you committed to the process of figuring out what works? And that takes time. That takes a lot of runway. And it sounds like you were giving yourself enough time to make those mistakes and you had enough runway to get to the point where you figured out what you should be focusing on. Having a relatively modest burn rate was helpful for sure. But I did, I was making money pretty quickly. For those who aren't familiar, what is a burn rate? Oh, just how much it costs to live, what your nut is, you know, and uh, I didn't have a gigantic mortgage, but I did get started pretty quickly, you know, cause I was, I was very aggressive. I knew I needed to get the flywheel going. And so I was very aggressive with reaching out and finding projects. Mm. And the fact is, if I didn't see a lot of demand, I wouldn't have gone into this area. You know, I knew people were, like I said, even at Creative Live were coming to me and saying, Hey, I need help with this. And so I saw, I said, okay, if these people with no prompting are coming to me for this help, if I reach out to every single agent I know, I'm going to start seeing some incoming interest. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. So that's what you're just, because it's funny when I hear a guy like David Moldauer use the word aggressive, you're like one of the least aggressive people that I've met. So to you, what that means is what? Making phone calls, reaching out to people, networking. Yeah. And not, you know, cause, cause one thing I notice people do in my area is they'll get a job and they'll stop. They'll just, mm. okay, I'm going to do this, uh, this editing job, you know? And it's like, okay, but have you really thought this through? I mean, even if you negotiated a big fee, how is it being paid out? What's your cash flow going to look like? And what will happen if you stop marketing your services and then you get the final payment, you're going to be two months until the next job. So yes. understanding that, getting ahead of myself and saying, when are these checks going to come in? What's my, how much am I spending each month? Just getting in the numbers. It was uncomfortable. I know no one likes to do it and you don't have to do it when you have a salary. But once you get good at that, you have you develop this intuitive sense of I better take on another project. And by the way, this also ties into authors because we talked about platform. One of the most common things is they'll come and say, I'm going to do the book. The book obviously is going to make me famous. But even if I don't have a platform, once I sell the book with your help and the proposal, then I'll build the platform. And I say to them, I was like, let's think this through. You sell the book to Penguin Random House, some imprint, give you a nice big check in March they're going to give you, let's say, nine months, sometimes less. During that nine months, you're going to be writing the book. Even if you hire me, you're going to be busy writing the book, editing the book, responding, meeting. When are you going to start a blog and make it successful? It can take years to pivot and figure out where the audience is and kind of grow to a substantial number. You're going to do that while you're writing your first book. It doesn't make any sense. If anything, when, when I've seen people who have a big platform, they have millions of YouTube followers or whatever. It often, if anything, f goes dark. It gets flat. They start losing audience during that time because they're so focused on making an amazing book. So if anything, your platform is going to be worse than it was when you begin the process of writing it. So it's the last time to start finding your audience once you've sold the book. If only there was a guy who could help them write that book, right? <laughs> yeah, but even process. with my help, even with my help, you have no business trying to grow a platform when your book is being written. It's just a very consuming, creative process. And it's very fast. Get your platform in order before you sell it. 
And like I said, start selling your next project while you're working on the current project. Don't wait till you've, you're halfway through or you're finished because it takes time you know, to bring in new leads and you don't want to have to take the first one that comes in the door. So that's why I'm always, like I said, aggressive. I'm always reaching out, always trying to line up more work. Yeah. A big part of the message of, of this podcast and you know, I, the, the concept is I'm teaching my kids how to be successful. And so when I choose a guest, I'm being very, very thoughtful about it. And part of the reason why I brought you on is because I know that family and having balance and having enjoyment in your life is so critical to what you've set up, right? So what have you done to make sure that you make time for the things that matter most in the midst of reaching out and getting all these new customers? Well, one thing I, I very much limit is deadline-driven work mm. because when there's a deadline, it, it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter if one of my kids has a school event or if there's some special occasion, if the work needs to get done. The book proposal work I do is not deadline-driven. It is a creative process. It takes as long as it takes, and it is never an emergency. The only emergency I have is when I'm ghostwriting a book, and I, I limit that to one at a time for that reason. So that I'm never put in a position that I have to choose between my work and my family. You know, this weekend we went away. I have work. There's a, a lot of work to do, but we needed that time. They're about to go back to school. And so I prioritize that. Also using my time efficiently. You know, this I'm not in an office anymore. So I get up at 445. I'm at my desk at eight o'clock and I put in three hours before I before I do anything else. And so I know that even if the afternoon kind of goes scrambly, like right now they're home from camp and they're kind of running around and taking my son to the orthodontist and all that thing. I know that I got three hours in, you know, that's kind of like a baseline and it really brings my anxiety down. I know that I'm kind of making progress. So that's a, a huge part of it. It's just not being sloppy with my time because it's very easy to let it go. I like, you know, I call it the discipline of the book. That's like my little catchphrase. Hmm. It's like, whatever's going on, I got to get some words down on the book. Like that's the first thing. I've got a word count to meet. That's my deadline. I've got to get some words down. Preferably I blow right past my word count minimum so that I'm always kind of like getting ahead of it, always building up that, those savings. So when we had a yeah. health crisis in the extended family, I was there for it because I had the buffer built in. And I'm always trying to basically save time the same way you save money, which I also tell your kids, if you're a freelancer, that's huge. You got to have reserves, got to have padding, but it applies to time as well. Get way ahead of those deadlines. I use a, a software to plot out how much I have to write every day based on the projects. And it lets me put in vacations and family trips and everything. And then it says you need to do X number of words a day. Is that custom software or is that an app? That... No, no, it's called Pacemaker. Okay. And it's just an app and you can use it to track uh, editing, writing, any sort of ongoing goal. And it'll, it'll tell you how fast you have to go. And then I go ahead of that pace and I leave a nice buffer zone and I say, put five days at the end. Cause I've seen it all. I get, you get sick, this thing happened, that thing, they travel. I'm always building buffers so that when things go south, I don't have to miss my daughter's, you know, theater performance she had the other day that happened in the middle of the day. Yes. Boy, there's so many phrases you just said there that or things that I say to people, you know, that, that concept of being, building a time buffer, of avoiding sloppy time management. You have a start line to your day. Do you also have a finish line, a day that you, a time of the day that you won't cross? Yes. The beauty of that is, is that my mental reserves are exhausted before my temporal reserves are exhausted. Uh, and this isn't true of everyone, but there's never any day that I find myself at five o'clock being like, I got to keep going. Seven more pages. I'm wiped well before I need to go out. And so I will spend a chunk of the afternoon doing my admin, smaller tasks. Um, but really the lion's share of the creative work is the three hours in the morning. And then if I'm lucky, one or two more hours in the afternoon, but I'm working. It's not like when I was in an office, which was uh, a little more relaxed. This is, I'm getting words down. I am reading, I'm right. Whatever needs to happen, I'm doing it during those hours. Last question, what is that word count? What's your minimum word count per day? On this work? project, with all of our vacations and everything, um, it's 500X, something around 500 words a day. Uh, but I've been doing more like a thousand because I know from experience that the more time I have left at the end, I can go back, go back to the notes, build in more stuff, enrich it. It's so much easier to kind of fertilize and grow what you've already written. 
than to just have blank pages and an outline. So I'm just trying to get to the point where I have a very rough first draft. And I, I take you, you don't believe in writer's block. Oh, of course I believe in writer's block. That's why I need to use all these tricks to, to cue myself. Uh, I don't leave okay. myself any room. That's how you force yourself past it. Yes. I, I, what I do is I just, if I can't do that thing, I do the thing before it. So if I can't write the chapter, I write the outline for the chapter. If I can't write an outline, I have like a pre-outline. So I always can find something in between that, mm. that does feel small enough that I'm not in that state of like, I don't know what to do. Because that that is, I will get stuck forever if I let that happen. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I think of that as what's the, what's the first minute or what's just the next small step? How can you trick yourself into doing something that's a bigger project by just doing the smaller version of it? I, I love that. That's great. Uh, there's so much stuff here. So I'm going to ask one last question and then we'll do what everyone knows I'm going to do at the end of this. Who's been listening to the podcast. Where do you see yourself five years from now? What's, what's the next thing on your horizon? Oh, doing this. I mean, the, the beauty of being uh, an editor in publishing and also being a ghostwriter is that you're always working with new people and new projects. I've worked on books. I never thought, you know, in areas I never thought anyone would trust me to be a partner, a creative partner. I'm always like, are you sure? Like, are you going to, you're going to work with me to write about this? And that's delightful. That's delightful to get to explore these different areas of expertise, to meet these different people, see a glimpse of their lives. Uh, I don't know why I would change it. I would just like to like keep doing that, keep exploring and working with people with unusual backgrounds of great, unique accomplishments. Yeah. I, I love that, that I think everyone has picked up on this your natural enthusiasm for what it is that you do, your passion for writing. And I always love to see someone doing what they were meant to do. Uh, so that it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. At the end of every episode, David, uh, what I do is I help the audience figure out some specific action steps that they might take. And the goal is to just do one of these, but don't do it next week. Do it today or tomorrow. And then that way, someone listening will make David Moldauer a part of their life forever because they're going to follow one of your examples and they're going to help that's going to help them be uh, successful as well. So I'm going to call out, gosh, I had like a huge list from this one, but I try to limit it to three. So I'm going to limit it to three possible actions. And then if you wouldn't mind at the end, add one other possible smaller step, some action that someone can take to follow your example. Sound good? Sure. Okay, so here is the first one, and we heard this phrase a lot, which is write to your audience. Get to know the people that you're serving, and whatever it is you do, even if you're not a writer, just think, serve to that audience. Put yourself in their shoes and say, what is it that they would want from me? What is it that they need to hear from me? And take the time to do it. So many times we are we're too automatic with things. We just do, this is what's expected and we're not really thinking about the person. And I think if you take the time to, to get to know who it is that you're serving or writing for or whatever you're doing, it will guide everything that you do and make it more successful. So I, I like that one. The other one, this is, you were almost using my terminology, but focus on your most valuable activities, focus on your most valuable customer, focus on the things that are worth the most per hour, rather than trying to be everything to everyone. Think about all the different things that you're doing in your week and say, which of these should I focus on? And you can even assign a dollar value per hour and say, which of these is worth, you know, hundreds of dollars an hour and which of these is worth minimum wage? And try to schedule your day and your time to avoid doing the lower value and spend more time doing the higher value. And then the last one is don't stop when you have a customer. This might lean a little bit more toward the entrepreneurial members of, the, of this audience, but I heard it this way, uh, David. There are two different ways to think about growing a business or making sales there's the water wheel and there's the snake. The snake eats something, let's say it eats an egg, and it slowly digests that thing through the whole process. And when you act like a snake, you are not preparing for the future. You're just eating up all of the reserves that you have. And at the end, you're going to put lots of pressure on yourself and you have to repeat it. Instead, be like the water will, be like David Moldauer and always be reaching out and making new connections and looking for opportunities so that it's just a constant flow of cash and opportunities that'll keep you safe and steady in the long run. Those are my three. David, what would you suggest is one thing that someone can do? 
Absolutely. Uh, the pr- one of my core principles that that didn't come up at all amazingly is competitive analysis, which applies everywhere. Mm. It applies to authors, but it applies everywhere. When I started in being an editor, and I was like, how do I meet all these people? I'm not social. How do I meet all these agents? That's the whole thing is meeting agents. So I talked to another guy who seemed to know everybody. And I said, what do you do? And he said, it's simple. I look for who sold a book that I would, would have wanted to acquire in the trade press. And I call that person. I say, hey, I just saw you, the agent just sold this book. That would have been great for me. And then I use that as a window to get them to lunch. And when wow. I meet them for lunch, I say, "Who? what are two other people I should talk to? And I just did that process. That's my whole agent network. Just I just did what he did. It was working for him. I did that. That's how I did it. And when I with books, we always start, what are the other people who are talking to this audience doing? What do the other books look like? What are the, the tone, the cover, the title? What kind of platform do they have? Oh, you want a website? What kind of website do your competitors have? Because people are just kind of making it up in their heads. I was like, why make it up? You have five other people. They're all sales trainers. They're all trying to reach these big Fortune 500 companies. What do their websites look like? Who built those websites? What publishers did they publish their books with? Maybe it's all with the same imprint. That makes it easy. Maybe they all have the same agent. That makes it easy. Why make it up when you can actually just do your research? Look at the competition. Yeah. Well, and you use that phrase that makes it easy. It's, It's a way to easily find some shortcuts rather than trying to reinvent the whole process. You just learn what somebody else did and then and then make it your own, right? Sure. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much, David, for uh, taking the time to generously share your story and share your wisdom with us. I, I know I got a ton from it. I'm sure everyone else did as well. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, it's not just about the knowledge that you gain, but it's the action that you take from that knowledge. So whether you take one of my suggestions or David's suggestion, just pick one thing you can do, an action you can take, not a month from now, not a year from now, but this week. And if you do that, you'll make my guest, David Moldauer, a part of your life forever. You've been listening to the Dave Crenshaw Success Project, hosted by my dad, Dave Crenshaw, and produced by Invaluable Incorporated. Sound editing was done by my brother, Stratton Crenshaw. Research and assistant production by Victoria Bidez. Voiceover by me, Darcy Crenshaw. And the music is by Ryan Brady via Pond 5 Licensing. Please subscribe to the Dave Crenshaw Success Project on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a five-star review. See you next time.